The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Hanover, York County. In the summer of 1863, Confederate General Jeb Stuart was desperate to reunite with the Army of Northern Virginia. To do so, however, he'd have to fight his way through the city of Hanover and waiting Union forces. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Hanover are authors Eric Wittenberg and J.D. Petruzzi. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Brady. Thanks, Brady. We're happy to be here. Tell us first a little bit about your background. Me? I was, I'm a, actually a native Pennsylvanian, although I've lived in Columbus, Ohio for 29 years. I uh, grew up in, in the Reading area. I did my undergraduate at Dickinson College in Carlisle. I have a master's degree and my law degree from the University of Pittsburgh and migrated west for job purposes, so I've been out there ever since. Uh, I'm the author of 19 published books on the Civil War. My specialty is Civil War Cavalry Operations and the Gettysburg Campaign. And I'm a, uh, also a native Pennsylvanian, 1987 graduate of uh, Penn State University, but my uh, school background or, or my, my learning background is not exactly history. My uh, degree from Penn State is in insurance, which is what I do. I'm actually an insurance broker. Um, it actually makes it kind of nice because it gives me the, the flexibility and the free time to pursue um, historical pursuits. Uh, but so you've got an insurance salesman and an attorney here. I think if we had a used car salesman, you'd probably have the top. We'd three. have it all covered. <laughs> <laughs> Most popular people. Uh, tell us a little bit about Hanover in the time of the Civil War. Well, um, Hanover is a very old town. Uh, it was uh, first settled in the 1750s and was laid out by a fellow named Richard McAllister in, I think, 1763, so 100 years actually before the battle. Named so for pretty, Hanover, Germany. Time. Right. Um, there's, there's those German roots and Scotch-Irish and so forth. Um, it was known as Hickory Town actually before Hanover because here in this area, and you wouldn't know it today, but the area was really... Uh, populated by hickory swamps and heavily, heavily forested areas and so forth, uh, but a rather old town, a, a rather ethnic town, and set up on the same type of grid, so we say as we know a lot of the central and you know, south central Pennsylvania towns, you have a town square, roads radiating out of the town, you know, which are usually named for the other towns that they go to. And because of that, that's really going to play a part in how this battle unfolds, the way the town's laid out. 
Much like the Battle of Gettysburg, this is all driven by road networks. What's the state of the Civil War in the summer of 1863? Well, the Confederates have sought to remove the war from Virginia to give the farmers a break. They have, after much discussion, elected to invade Pennsylvania. The leading elements of the, the Confederate invasion crossed the Mason-Dixon line into, into Pennsylvania as early as June 22nd. Elements of the Army of Northern Virginia's 2nd Corps make it all the way to the outskirts of Harrisburg, uh, where there's a skirmish as late as June 30th, uh, a place called Sporting Hill and Camp Hill. Lee has ordered the, the concentration of the Army at Gettysburg once he's learned about the presence of, of Union forces north of the Potomac River, and uh, the Army of the Potomac is closing in on Lee's army. And the, uh, the concentration point chosen is Cashtown, but because of the road network in Gettysburg, uh, 10 major roads come together there, it becomes a natural focal point because the disparate elements of, of Lee's army have to use that road network to get to Cashtown. So consequently, the Union. Union High Command has elected to send Union Cavalry forces to seize and hold Gettysburg in order to block that route. And that sets the stage for what will become the Battle of Gettysburg. In the meantime, Stuart and his cavalry have been off on an eight-day expedition. And their, their route of march in searching for Ewell's infantry brings them right through Hanover on their way from Westminster, Maryland. They're on their way to York. One thing we've learned on this program especially is that Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania has many objectives in mind. What are the targets he looks at? What are some of the uh, maybe less considered uh, elements of his invasion that he talked about? Well, I think definitely probably, you know, the, the more well-known and important geographical targets that he's looking at. Harrisburg, you know, for one, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Washington. And I, and I think it's important to keep in mind that not only, you know, the logistical, um, you know, fallout or results that if the Confederate Army were to actually lay siege upon these areas and, and you know, maybe have um, some sort of a, a military dominance in those areas, is the psychological effect, you know, for the North. And I think Lee is very, very aware of that, as well as the new Federal Army Commander George Meade, but also very importantly, Abraham Lincoln you know, the president. I think there's, a, there's definitely a psychological effect to that. If Lee can get some type of a victory here in Pennsylvania, that he was almost at the doorstep to in Maryland, you know, the previous fall, culminating in the Battle of Antietam, if he can get some type of victory here on northern soil, that will politically make a lot of the, the northern citizens and politicians who are already tired of this war and maybe considering suing for peace you know, really rethink the strategy of, of Lincoln and the Federal Army. So there's, there's that psychological effect, that, which is just as important as anything military or strategic. You are both considered experts in this field. Uh, we always hear about what ifs, Philadelphia being a target. In your opinion, uh, could Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia have actually taken Philadelphia? What would an attack on Philadelphia have looked like? That would have been logistically very difficult because he, at that point, has more or less had to cut off his logistical supply tail and live off the land and hope that he's got enough ammunition. It's, I think, a highly unlikely scenario. Harrisburg is a much more likely target 
because that's within his supply chain. But to, to march all the way to Philadelphia and attempt to attack Philadelphia is really almost impossible, I think. Not at least by the route that he'd taken. Had he come up a different route, perhaps from Baltimore, then it's a different story. But by coming up via Williamsport, Maryland, and then coming through the Cumberland Valley, he's cutting himself off from his supply chain if he tries to go all the way to Philadelphia. It does, it does seem extraordinary. Certainly, it would have been a, an enormous moment in American history. J.D., what do you think? I think it's a very important point that Eric just touched on, um, the fact that he mentioned that elements of the Confederate Army, Confederate cavalry specifically, have crossed Mason-Dixon as early as June 22nd. Um, Brigadier General Albert Jenkins' Confederate Cavalry Brigade, for one, as well as some other elements. One of their primary duties, besides clearing the way in Pennsylvania for Robert E. Lee and his Confederate Army, is also for them to begin gathering supplies. And this, we have this from their diaries and, of course, letters from citizens and their accounts, um, that the Confederate Cavalry has been gathering all the horses, all the food, you know, everything that they can. Uh, to help feed and equip and supply Lee's army once it gets into Pennsylvania. The further he gets from his base, the more that he needs to do that. And I think because of that, it changes our, our perception of what the citizens here in this area have been going through for those weeks and months prior to the Battle of Hanover, the Battle of Gettysburg. We get the idea sometimes that on July 1st, the Battle of Gettysburg falls on the citizens in the town and they've never been touched by the Civil War before, or June 30th here, the Battle of Hanover. They certainly have already for, for days and several weeks because of the threat of an invasion in the North by the Confederate Army. Citizens here have already been sending their horses and loading wagons with all their possessions and trying to send them east towards Philadelphia and the Susquehanna in order to protect them. So in direct contrast to these people, you know, not being touched by the Civil War, they've been very touched by it, very affected by it long before these battles even happen. Obviously, logistics are important, but let's talk about intelligence gathering. How did the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac know where their opponents were? What methods did they use? Well, there's a variety of ways. First, intelligence gathering is one of the primary roles of cavalry in its traditional roles, and, and it's the cavalry's job to go out and find the enemy and find the enemy's dispositions and report back. So that's one way. Also getting a lot of very useful information from the citizenry. Uh, the Army of the Potomac had an extremely successful organization called the Bureau of Military Information, uh, which is shorthand for spy network uh, that was extraordinarily successful. The, the, the men of the BMI really worked hard and really did a good job of gathering intel. So when you, when you combine all of those things between the intelligence gathered by the cavalry, the local in reports from the citizenry and the work being done by the BMI, uh, the Union High Command actually had a pretty good idea of where the dispositions of the Confederate Army were. By contrast, Lee really didn't know where the Union Army was, and that's in part because of the poor decision Lee made in allowing Stuart to go off on this expedition that we're here to talk about today. You mentioned cavalry and the importance of intelligence. What went into being a cavalry officer? in the 19th century? Cavalry is definitely the intelligence arm of, of either army. They are the eyes and ears of the army. And I think it's important to understand that a cavalryman is really two entities in one, the man and the horse. If a cavalryman does not have a horse, what is he? He's infantry. 
Um, the, the horse gives the cavalryman mobility and those that are able to actually interpret information that he gets from those sources that Eric mentions, whether it's citizens, um, you know, interviewing um, captives, Confederate captives, say for instance on the Union side, uh, they're going to try to get as much information as they can out of them. It's, it's uh, very important for those cavalry officers to be good at what they do and perceptive in analyzing that information that they're receiving. And so much of either the good analyzation or, or the bad analysis, you know, plays into how so many battles and skirmishes end up taking place. One of the great things about the Battle of Hanover are the big personalities we have here. One of them, unmistakably, is Jeb Stuart. Uh, who is he and what has he been doing as Lee's army invades Pennsylvania? Well, as you say quite correctly, Brady, Stuart is one of the, the, the big personalities of the war. James Ewell Brown Stuart, born in the southern portion of Virginia, not far from the North Carolina state line, uh, West Point trained cavalry officer, known for being a fun-loving guy. He liked to sing. He liked to tell jokes. He liked to laugh a whole lot. So he kind of has this image because of that and his, the, 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 the hat with the ostrich plume that he wore of, of being somewhat frivolous and lighthearted. But the reality of the situation is this was one extraordinarily capable, professional, competent soldier who is described by John Sedgwick, the, his former commander in, in the 1st Regiment of Cavalry before the war, and now the commander of the 6th Corps of the Army of the Potomac, as being the finest cavalryman ever fold on the North American continent. Stuart was 33 years old. He was at the height of his fame. He was at the height of his glory. And he was as good as they came. He and Lee had a very close personal relationship. Lee relied on him personally to be his eyes and ears. And when Stuart was gone longer than Lee expected him to be, and no word from Stuart was, was rising, arriving at Army headquarters, Lee became extremely nervous about it, became very concerned about it. I don't know that he was necessarily concerned so much about the, the state of his cavalry force as he was recognizing how blind he was without the man he relied on as his eyes and ears. So Stuart is, is one of the towering figures of the American Civil War. He's uh, a guy that's almost irreplaceable for the Confederacy, certainly would have been in 1863. Cavalrymen enjoyed a level of celebrity that by today's standards, folks in the military just don't have. Uh, almost, almost a Hollywood celebrity level. I, I equate him to fighter pilots. Yeah. Can we talk about that, how people viewed cavalrymen, especially Stuart? Well, like I say, Stuart was known as, as being a guy who w was larger than life because he had this big outgoing personality and he, he liked to sing. His theme song, if you want to have some fun, join the cavalry. He um, liked to laugh. He liked to have a good time. He was a, a lead from the front sort of guy who, who always led his men with a smile on his face. So he was sort of a, the antithesis of, of Stonewall Jackson, with whom he had a close relationship. Jackson was quiet and dour and, and shy, and Stuart was big and outgoing, and it was really an interesting opposites attract type of a situation. Let's go to the other side, the Union side, Judson Kilpatrick. His name's on the monument. J.D., tell us yeah. about him. 
We love to study Judson Kilpatrick, and, and probably for, for various reasons, he's, he's very attractive to, uh, to many students of the Civil War. In many ways, very much the opposite, you know, of a Jeb Stewart. Uh, Judson Kilpatrick was born in Deckertown, New Jersey. He's a graduate of the May 1861 West Point class. West Point at the start of the war was graduating those, you know, young officers in order to get them out of the field early. Um, one of his um, uh, brigade commanders that, of course, we'll be talking about in a little bit, uh, George Armstrong Custer, graduated in the, in the June 1861 class. So Kilpatrick, right, a year early. Uh, so Kilpatrick is young. He's a, at the start of the Civil War, he's a, um, a fresh officer out of West Point. He spends time in both the cavalry and the infantry early in his career, and probably a good foreshadowing of his career is he is arrested early in his career um, for some shenanigans involving the sale of horses and spend some time in the old Capitol prison. Uh, but despite that, he gets back out in the field. He, in early 1863, um, he eventually takes a, a command of a regiment at Brandy Station and impresses Alfred Pleasanton, the uh, federal cavalry commander, so much that Kilpatrick is one of sort of those early boy generals who is promoted to Brigadier General, skips several grades. In mid-June, he's promoted to Brigadier General and takes command of the 3rd Division shortly after that. Uh, so he is one of the three division commanders along with John Buford and David Gregg in the Army of the Pot uh, Potomac's Cavalry. Uh, he is in command here at Hanover. Uh, he is known and proves himself as a very impetuous commander, in many ways probably a pretty good fit, you know, with Custer. Uh, even though he is married early in the war, he's known as a hopeless womanizer. One of the most famous photographs of Kilpatrick shows him and his staff in camp, and I think it's from 1864. Uh, and it actually shows one of his mistresses. He, he had several who would travel along with him in a cavalry uniform with her hair tucked up under her cap. Uh, so he wasn't shy even about, you know, his... Uh, and Eric wrote a book which highlights Kilpatrick's career towards the end of the war, uh, which deals with his, his womanizing and so forth, but not to be overshadowed, I think, by the way some commanders actually did feel about him. William Tecumseh Sherman, in fact. I think it's important to look at the way he describes Kilpatrick, and he says, Kilpatrick is a hell of a damn fool, but just the sort of damn fool that I want commanding my cavalry. So when he goes with Sherman's army, um, he's still back in his old ways, but he is effective as a commander. Early in the Gettysburg campaign, he earns the nickname Kill Cavalry, sort of a play on his last name, um, which points to the fact that he is known for using up men and horses almost impetuously. Uh, he is not afraid to attack. But one of his shortcomings is he very rarely coordinates with the other commanders on the field. And that will show somewhat here, you know, at Hanover, but it's also going to show very much during the rest of the campaign and during the Battle of Gettysburg as well. Um, he sees himself after the war as eventually the governor of New Jersey, then eventually the president. He's fully convinced that he's going to get there one day, but he, he's appointed uh, minister to Chile. Um, one of the things he is remembered, though, for, and I find it very interesting, is he was one of the first organizers of Civil War reenactments. And on his farm in New Jersey, that was one of the things that he did in the decades after the war, is he would invite both federal and Confederates to come and reenact battles on his property. So 
I find that very interesting. The war never left him, to be sure. There's a wonderful quote by Captain Charles Francis Adams of the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry, who was the grandson of John Quincy Adams and the great-grandson of John Adams and had the Adams family gift for, for an acid tongue. And he said about Kilpatrick, he called him a brave, injudicious boy, much blown to huffing. <laughs> Cavalry really does take center stage here at this battle. Uh, you mentioned Custer. Who were some of the other young officers involved? With, uh, with Kilpatrick, for instance, uh, Elon Farnsworth, who is one of those boy generals who's promoted along with uh, Custer and also Wesley Merritt, um, who's going to be in command of the Reserve Brigade, not here at Hanover, but, but in Gettysburg. Um, those boy generals um, are going to prove very pivotal here during the Gettysburg campaign. In Farnsworth's case, though, because of a decision that Kilpatrick makes to launch a, a probably ill-advised mounted cavalry attack on July 3rd, just following Pickett's charge, uh, Farnsworth is killed. So here at Hanover, Elon Farnsworth uh, unfortunately just has three days to live. Uh, but very good you know, brigade commanders in both Farnsworth and Custer because of the fact this is a two-phase battle, Farnsworth is really going to carry the first phase of the Battle of Hanover, and then Custer is going to carry the second phase. Um, there are good commanders uh, at the regimental le uh, level as well. One that I can mention, the very inexperienced 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, which um, is in Farnsworth's brigade, and they're actually going to open the battle with the Confederates here on the morning of June 30th, is commanded uh, by Lieutenant Colonel William Penn Brinton. And if you notice his middle name, he comes from quite a Pennsylvania family, Penn, uh, a very good commander. Um, on the Confederate side, if you want to talk about those, uh, there are equally, equally important you know, commanders, one of which is going to um, uh, face quite a twist here at Hanover in a rather embarrassing way <laughs> that he's going to end up going down. Well, yeah, and on the Confederate side, you have brigades commanded by Fitzhugh Lee, who is the favorite nephew of Robert E. Lee and Stewart's soulmate, I guess is the best way to describe him. Fitz Lee was called the Laughing Cavalier. I've always said about him, though, that he's the, the, the greatest example of the proof of uh, nepotism that, that you could ask for, that had he not been the favorite nephew of the commanding general of the Army of Northern Virginia, he might have made a pretty good regimental sergeant major. Uh, so you've got Fitz Lee and his veteran brigade of Virginians. You have Wade Hampton III reputedly the, the most the wealthiest man in, in the south from South Carolina who will ultimately succeed uh, Stuart in command of the Cavalry Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia when Stuart's killed in, in 1864. Uh, Hampton, even though he had no formal military training, was an extraordinarily capable officer. And the 3rd Brigade is commanded by a fellow named John Randolph Chambliss, Jr. Uh, Chambliss is the senior colonel of, of a brigade that's normally commanded by General William Henry Fitzhugh Lee, the second son of General Robert E. Lee, but uh, Rooney Lee, as he was known to his friends, was pretty severely wounded in the closing engagements at Brandy Station on June 9, and ultimately ended up being captured. So his brigade is now commanded by his senior colonel. Shambliss is a, a West Point classmate of and best friend of David Gregg, who commands the second division of the uh, Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps. And Shambliss is a very capable officer in his own right. He'll end up being promoted to Brigadier General during the winter of 63-64 and is killed in action in 64. So he, he is a, a capable officer commanding a, a capable brigade made up mostly of Virginians, but with uh, one regiment of North Carolinians. In the lead up to this battle, moving into Pennsylvania, Jeb Stewart 
finds himself in some pretty uncomfortable situations. Yeah. What kind of problems does he face coming toward uh, his, his ride? Yeah, unfortunately, it gets off the tracks, you know, nearly from the very start. Um, a rather well-known um, Confederate cavalryman Mosby was very instrumental in, in laying out a, a track for Stewart, you know, to follow north into Pennsylvania. Uh, but Stewart is given a monumental task when you think about it. When he is ordered um, to proceed on his own through Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, several tasks fell upon his shoulders, um, one of which was to try to keep contact, you know, and protect the right of the Confederate Army as it is proceeding, Ewell's Corps, in fact, uh, as it's proceeding into Pennsylvania, to gather all of the supplies that he can, both in Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, and also do all the damage that he can, you know, to the enemy and to any supports and so forth that they may have in Pennsylvania. Any of those tasks in and of themselves, by themselves, you know, would be quite a task. Stewart instead is given all three. And it's not made any easier by the fact that Yule, as he is proceeding north, actually in violation of his orders, does not proceed east of South Mountain. He goes west. So he's even further from Stewart and does not maintain any contact with him at all. In fact, on June 30th, um, General Ewell probably hears the noise of the cannon and so forth happening here at Hanover while he's north, and Ewell never sends anybody to the south here to find out what's happening. So uh, Stewart's task is definitely not made any easier by any of that, coupled with the fact that his, his march is made more difficult by elements of the Federal Army that he ends up running into. He captures some wagons in Rockville, Maryland, outside D.C., there's um, a lot of controversy whether that slowed him down or sped him up. We argue in our, in our book, Plenty of Blame to Go Around, that in fact capturing those wagons actually aided his march north because of the fact that there was a lot of good fodder for the horses in there. You can't just graze your horses on nothing but grass for, for days at a time. So he's got those wagons in tow. Um, he runs into uh, Federals in both Westminster um, and um, Fairfax Station. Uh, Fairfax, yes. <laughs> Thank you. In Virginia. So each of these is going to slow him down. By the time he gets to Hanover here, the Battle of Hanover on June the 30th becomes a, an enormous chapter in this saga of his ride north when it's going to slow him down for an entire day. Uh, the Federals are going to get in his way the, all the way into Pennsylvania. Uh, why Hanover? Why does Stewart decide to uh, do battle with the Federals here? Well, he didn't decide to do battle with anybody. It's, this is a classic example of what military personnel like to call a meeting engagement, which is an accidental encounter between two forces that develops into a general engagement. And that's exactly what happened. Stewart's on his way from Westminster, Maryland to York, which is where he believes he's gonna find Jubal Early's division. Hanover's the route to do that. It's a direct road from Westminster to Hanover, Hanover directly to York. Using the same road network, coming from Littlestown, Pennsylvania, and headed in the general direction of York is Kilpatrick's division. The road from Westminster runs right into the road from Littlestown, just east of downtown Hanover, at a place that at the time was called Butts Town. And that's where the battle begins, is when the, the tail end of Farnsworth's column, which is at the rear of Kilpatrick's division, 
is crossing through the intersection as the head of, of Stewart's column arrives there. And that's what causes the fight to begin. So the Federals end up turning around to come back from elements of Kilpatrick himself was several miles beyond the town and had to turn around and gallop back uh, in, once he hears the, the commotion in his rear. And Kilpatrick's forces were, were very spread out here, even, even more spread out than we suspected you know, several years ago when we were doing research for, for our book, Plenty of Blame. Custer, with his Michigan regiments, had already passed through the town of Hanover about two hours before that, before daylight. Um, went through the Pigeon Hills and was heading towards Abbottstown. In fact, the, the head of his column had just about reached Abbottstown. So he was several miles to the north. Kilpatrick's um, uh, regiments under Farnsworth were pretty well sped, spread out from Buttstown, also known as Mudtown, has, has a lot of little names, this little settlement, which is uh, uh, south of Hanover, about three miles, all the way through the town square of Hanover. And then a couple of regiments were actually working their way north out of there. So Kilpatrick's forces were spread out over something like five or six miles by the time this battle happens. He's got to bring those forces together in order to face what he soon finds out is a rather large threat. When it appears that a battle is in fact going to happen here at Hanover, uh, what steps do both generals take to make sure they put their best foot forward? Well, on Kilpatrick's uh, side, he first has to assess exactly what threat he faces. And the fact that he's already north of town and he had actually already crossed the Pigeon Hills north of town, when he hears the shooting, and as Eric mentioned, um, the, the very rear of his column met the, the very front of, of Stewart's column uh, approximately 8.30 in the morning on June 30th, and that's what starts the battle. What turns Kilpatrick around is the fact that by this time, shortly after the opening had started, General Jeb Stewart was able to get some of his artillery on a couple of prominent hills just south of the town, overlooking the town. So as Kilpatrick is riding along, he suddenly hears this boom just south of the town. If you can imagine thousands of federal cavalry really in the streets right next to us here, all those thousands of heads all turning at once and facing back where that artillery boom had just come from. Of course, Kilpatrick caught it in his ear. He turns around. Um, he immediately starts sending runners and couriers to find out what's going on, turns his horse around, spurs off so fast that his headquarters guard, a couple of companies of the 1st Ohio Cavalry, um, actually injure some of their horses just trying to keep up with Kilpatrick as he's getting into town. As soon as he gets into town, he's got to get his men together, he's got to assess what's going on, get as much information and intelligence as possible, and set up a headquarters, which is what he does. Um, obviously on the, the Confederate side, because now Jeb Stewart's planned route through Hanover, through the Pigeon Hills, and then north to try to find Yule has been completely disrupted. He has to assess whether he wants to engage here. You know, if it's something that he's either going to be able to meet this threat, push it aside, how many forces are in front of me. And these are decisions he's had, he's had to make for the past few days. Um, is his route blocked or is he going to have to find an alternative? So there are very important snap decisions, all of them based on as much and, and as quick intelligence as they can get to assess what they're going to do. It bears noting that when Kilpatrick finally arrived in the town square, after from riding his horse so hard, the horse dropped dead. It's pretty well documented. This battle will be pretty extraordinary. You have hundreds of horsemen in an urban setting, uh, really 
largely unseen in the in the greater context of the Civil War. Take us through the Battle of Hanover. Well, let, let me address that point, Brady. In, in all my years of studying cavalry operations, it's one of only two episodes that I've been able to identify of mounted street fighting in a town during the war. And interestingly enough, they bracket both sides of the Battle of Gettysburg. You have Hanover here on June 30th and Hagerstown, Maryland on July 6th, both involving Kilpatrick's division. Uh, but when the battle breaks out, it moves from the Buttstown intersection in this direction. One of the officers that J.D. mentioned earlier is a fellow by the name of Lieutenant Colonel William H. Payne. Payne is, is trying to escape from some troopers of the 5th New York Cavalry who are chasing him, and his horse is shot, and it throws him, and the horse happened to be right next to a tannery. And he, the horse ends up throwing Payne into this vat of tannery goo of animal hide that's been soaking in acid, and he ends up in this foul-smelling, disgusting mess and ends up being captured. It's about as humiliating as, of a way of being captured as you'll ever find in the whole Civil War. Stewart himself, along with his engineering officer, Captain William W. Blackford, get cut off by some troopers of the 5th New York. And Stewart and Blackford end up having to jump across what Stewart later described as a 15-foot-wide ditch to escape. Farnsworth's brigade actually has to turn around and with the 5th New York Cavalry, commanded by Major John Hammond, will actually make a charge and will we'll crash into the, the head of the Confederate column. And that's where this street fighting back and forth mounted charges and counter charges right through the, the, the streets of the town of Hanover take place. It really is a remarkable situation. It, it's, as of that moment, it was really pretty much unprecedented in, in the course of the war. If we were able to be here about 10 or 10.30 on the morning of June 30th, you know, 1863, these streets would literally thunder with uh, mounted cavalry counter charges. Uh, when it does happen in a town like this, we're very fortunate that we get a lot of accounts from the citizens. The, the citizens here had to deal with not only the Confederate cavalry literally running roughshod, you know, through the streets, through the back alleys, in their yards, uh, on their porches, uh, they, many of them locked themselves in the basement and watched from there. It was so loud and there was so much mayhem um, that it just literally scared the bejeebers out of just about every citizen here in town. Uh, interestingly uh, enough, there was, a, there was some jail cells underground here in the town right. square. So imagine being one of those prisoners and having this going on over your head. <laughs> Could we talk about what a cavalry battle typically looks like and then what putting that in the middle of a city would do to the people involved? Well, you know, we always talk about how terrain drives battles, whether it's infantry or, or cavalry or whatever, but it's, it's probably, you know, pardon the pun, a horse of a different color when you're talking about an urban street setting and mounted cavalry. They are so hemmed in by the streets, by the fences, you know, buildings. Um, it's one of the reasons why so many troopers on both sides are getting ambushed. You know, we have, um, uh, some of these very detailed accounts about seeing, for instance, a Confederate cavalryman in front of somebody's house who literally is just ambushed and, and it receives a deluge of like a dozen federal troopers who are after him. And of course, he can't get out. He can't cut his way out. And people are watching out their basement windows and just seeing troopers fall of both sides, fall off their horses as they're being shot 
or they're being you know, struck by a saber. Um, so it's an entirely different situation when they are stuck here in these streets and amongst the buildings. About midway through the battle, um, just as this is winding down in the town here, in fact, the citizens, the ones who are brave enough, actually come out in the town square and some of the streets surrounding the square and start throwing furniture and pieces of iron and, and wagons, overturning wagons, anything that they can find in order to try to block the Confederates from making any more charges into the town. This is described often as a two-phase battle. Uh, how does the first phase of this finally wrap up? That mounted phase of the fighting more or less peters out. Stuart pulls back a little bit. Kilpatrick also pulls back a little bit to reorganize their commands. By this time, Custer's forces arrived on, on the scene and they advance in the direction of the Buttstown intersection. All of the 5th Michigan Cavalry and four companies of the 6th Michigan Cavalry at Custer's Brigade were armed with Spencer repeating rifles. Lay down a tremendous amount of firepower. So to take advantage of that, Custer dismounts his troops and they begin to advance to attack Stuart's positions in a dismounted fashion. And that's how the second phase of the battle plays out. And this too, I, you know, I think it's very interesting um, to read the accounts of Custer in command here uh, during that second phase of the battle. Keep in mind, this is the very first time that many of these Michigan troopers have even seen Custer. You know, they never met him. One of his troopers writes, who is this man Custer? We don't know him. We know him somewhat by reputation, but Custer, for all of what we know about him and as famous as he becomes later during the Battle of Gettysburg and of course meeting his end at the Little Bighorn, um, he is green to these Michigan troops and they don't know who he is, they don't know other than reputation, you know, much about him. Plus he's one wearing of, a ridiculous outfit. Right. That, that the descriptions are. Described by, by one of his troopers as looking like a circus rider gone mad. Yeah. Wearing this black velveteen sailor suit with stars on the lapels. and It's just really a ridiculous looking outfit, but he, he, he always said he wore it so his men could find him easily on the battlefield. But they're not used to this. Well, in this already, you know, sometimes very vainglorious branch, you know, the cavalry, um, especially on the Confederate side with Jeb Stewart and his ostrich plume and his, you know, red velvet cape. You have Custer pulling up, who is only elevated to Brigadier General just a couple of days before this, but he must have known that it was coming, very likely through his benefactor, Alfred Pleasanton, the commander of the Cavalry Corps, that it was coming because by the time his commission arrived as general, um, as Eric says, Custer already had his black velvet uniform trimmed in gold, uh, red bandana, you know, beautiful hat. Uh, and this is how he appears on the field again for the very first time to these troopers. And you can only imagine what they must have thought when they saw him. One Who of them described him guy? as a circus rider gone mad. And that's probably uh, uh, about as good a description as, as you can come up with the way he must have looked that day. As the second phase of this battle begins, what becomes Stewart's new objective? What does he do to achieve that? His objective is really to get out of here with his command intact. Now keep in mind, he's got 150 wagons that he's bringing with him. So he's, his objective was never to fight here in the first place. So his objective is to find a way to extricate his entire command, including the wagons, and to go about his appointed rounds, which his appointed rounds are to try and find Early's command, which he believes is in York. Early, in fact, was eight miles away from here, heard the guns barking, and did nothing 
to try and find out what the commotion in his rear was. But Stewart had no way of knowing that. So Stewart is, is looking to get away from here to try and link up with Early's division, and that's what his objective is. Can we go through the second phase of the battle? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the second phase basically takes place towards Stewart's position to the south in what was then really an area of open fields. Uh, today it's pretty residential. If you go and look at those areas today, uh, whether it's you know the start of the battle here in the main part of town or the second phase in that area south of town, um, it, it's, it's a residential area, but it will give you somewhat of an idea of the terrain because you can see those elevated ridges south of the town, you know, which was a, a steward's position. And very much in contrast with the way Custer is going to conduct himself later on at the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, later on during the campaign and, and basically the balance of the war. As Eric says, Custer conducts this second phase of the battle entirely dismounted. This is not Custer on horseback. This is not Custer making an impetuous mounted charge. He's going to command his men in a dismounted fashion to try to make inroads towards Stuart's position to the south. Um, some will be briefly successful, but those Federals are going to be turned back rather easily because Stuart does claim the high ground. He's got artillery up there on those hills. Uh, the two hills are called Rice Hill and Keller Hill, and they're still known by those names today. They are very well um, uh, ringed with artillery by Stuart, and the Federal troopers are not going to be able to make any inroads up there. Um, it, it's a very tough slog. You know, they're, they're armed, some of them, with these Spencers, so they're able to, to shoot a little bit quicker, but it's not a position that they're going to be able to carry. They eventually start pulling back at, at Custer's command, and like so many Civil War battles and, and skirmishes, darkness is something you know that really is going to end this as well when the firing there begins to peter out and as eric says the very next decision that stewart's got to make is how do i get out of here and how do i find yule how do i continue my mission of trying to link up um, with the confederate army keep in mind here june 30th it's about a week now almost a week that he's been out of touch with the confederate army and he's in pennsylvania he's gotten into several battles and skirmishes and he hasn't been able to talk to one fellow confederate <laughs> you know, outside of his command to find out what's going on and who's where. How does Stewart ultimately uh, escape this pretty bad situation? Well, as J.D. said, darkness caused the fighting to end. And Kilpatrick, again, this is a meeting engagement. It wasn't planned. Kilpatrick has orders to get to Abbottstown. So as the day finally begins to, to grow dark, Kilpatrick breaks off and goes to, to Abbottstown like he's been ordered to do, and Stewart's perfectly happy to let him go. Uh, they both had other things to do and other places to go. This wasn't a planned engagement. It was never intended to be one. So they're, they're, a good way to describe it is a, at the end of the day that the two forces mutually repelled from each other. And that's one of the great controversies about Hanover, too. Shortly after this battle, in, in the dark, um, Stewart's command, and he, he ends up having to go further east and then north in order to get around Kilpatrick and, and accomplish his objective of getting north of here, He's followed for a time by some regular cavalrymen um, who come on the scene to support Kilpatrick a bit. But that's one of the inexplicable controversies about this is the fact that Kilpatrick let Stuart literally out of his grasp. He never followed him. Um, he did absolutely nothing to keep tabs on him and instead ends up spending the next day, July 1st, which is, as we all know is the first day in the opening of the Battle of Gettysburg itself, 
He spends all of that day riding around north of here in the Abbottstown area looking for Confederate elements and maybe signs of Stuart again. Can you only imagine, and that's something which has, has just dogged and plagued historians ever since. What was he thinking? Yeah. Is that typical in the Civil War for a battle to end in this fashion and for the controversy to follow it? Unfortunately. Yeah. But then again, that controversy gives guys like J.D. and me plenty to write about. <laughs> it does. It's a totally different, you know, to, to take ourselves back 150 years. I think today because of, you know, information is, is lightning fast and we find out like how our troops, with all of the, the technology and everything that we have, they're able to operate today and all the intelligence that we get um, when we're searching out the enemy. When we go back 150 years, sometimes it's difficult to put yourself in that place and understand how, for instance, in Stewart's case, well over 5,000 Confederate troopers can march several hundred miles into enemy territory um, and not be kept tabs on, or nobody knows you know, where they are. Um, the, the same with the Federals. Um, we have to take ourselves back in time, I think, to really understand the environment. There's no helicopters, there's no walkie-talkies, you know, there's no cell phones, there's no GPS. No text uh, messages. Right. Everything is done at eye level, you know, is kind of the way I describe it. And for, for every one of these soldiers, their entire world is all around them. You know, they're not looking at a computer screen uh, or anything like that. And, and for us to understand how they can operate, how they can move through territory like this, how battles can happen by accident, how forces can run into each other is really all a function of that lack of technology, you know, 150 years ago. We have to change our mindset, I think, to understand it. Now, the Battle of Gettysburg, obviously, for us, is looming large. Uh, what does Jeb Stewart do after this? Well, Stewart will arrive on, will actually go all the way to Carlisle. When he gets to York, he finds out early is gone. He knows that the other two divisions of Ewell's Corps were supposed to be operating somewhere between Carlisle and Harrisburg. So that's where he's going to go. He's going to make a beeline to Carlisle. Now, luckily, Fitz Lee had spent most of his pre-Army career, or pre-Civil War regular Army career, at the Carlisle Barracks and knew the area well. And, and uh, one of the colonels of, of Shamless's brigade, uh, Richard Beale, was a, an alum of Dickinson College, which is located in, in Carlisle. So he goes there expecting to find Confederate infantry there and instead finds Union infantry from the defenses of Harrisburg and he ends up uh, shelling Carlisle that evening and ultimately uh, finally gets a staff officer that he had sent to try and find the army, heard the, the guns at Gettysburg and, and rode to the sound of the guns, found Ewell, Ewell in turn sent him to Lee, Lee gave him orders to tell Stuart to come to, to, to Gettysburg and uh, they've, he arrives back in Carlisle in time uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Stuart limbers up his guns, heads off, leaving the town of Carlisle burning behind him with the, the gas works and the, the barracks on ablaze. Cast across South Mountain and marched the 30 miles to, to Car, to, from Carlisle to Gettysburg. He's so exhausted that he has to stop and sleep for a couple of hours because he just can't function anymore. Finally gets to Gettysburg at 2 in the afternoon. The rest of his force arrives about 6. Hampton's brigade has a, an encounter with Custer and Farnsworth, uh, again, at, at a place called Hunterstown. And then they have a, a large-scale engagement uh, on East Cavalry Field on the 3rd of July, where they take on Custer's brigade again, along with one of the brigades of David McMurtry, Gregg's 2nd Division. And, 
It's all the drama and romance you would expect of a, of a cavalry battle. The politics of the Civil War and battles I think are very interesting. There's a lot of controversy surrounding Jeb Stewart's role at Gettysburg. Can we talk about some of the blame that's maybe assigned to him and is it fair? Hmm. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why we came up with the title of the book that we did, that there's plenty of blame to go around. And we, we argue several sides of the question, presenting basically the evidence you know, to the reader to decide for themselves. Um, in, in general, Stewart does receive a lot of the blame for what happens at Gettysburg simply because of the fact that he does take that ride. He's out of touch with the Army. Uh, and he shows up on July 2nd after the battle is underway, and that's pretty much the quick and dirty you know, that, that most people get or, or most people study. What we offer, because of things like uh, the Battle of Westminster, the Battle of Hanover here, the way things proceed. Fairfax Station. In Fairfax, we, we basically offer that, you know, just consider, again, as I mentioned before, what his mission was, the different tasks that he was given to accomplish to operate in enemy territory on a nearly 200-mile ride and accomplish all this, all the while getting into these unexpected engagements you know, with the Federals. He does several things to try to, however, facilitate making his ride not so much easier, but let's say a little more efficient. When he captures those 150 wagons down in Rockville, Maryland, one of the things he does is he detaches half of the mule teams of each of those wagons in order to speed them along. He uses the very good horse fodder, you know, that's in there for his horses and his mules, something which probably helps him complete that ride. You know, rather than slowing him down, it probably actually helps him to finish it. Um, he makes several of those type of decisions, you know, to, to, uh, to actually facilitate making this ride. There's a lot of arguments on both sides, um, not the least of which, as I also mentioned before, is that Yule did not make it any easier for Stewart to try to link up with him. Nor did uh, Early. By, or, or Early, right. Um, as we mentioned a couple of times already, during this battle on June the 30th, we know that, that they heard the sound seven or eight miles north of here, but then did absolutely nothing to find out what was going on down here. Um, Early easily, yeah. Early had a regiment and a half of cavalry with him. He easily could have sent sure. a, a, some scouts down here to find out what was going on. Had he done so, could have linked up with Stuart. Stuart would have escorted Early's division to Gettysburg. And imagine Early's attack on July 1st at Gettysburg, crashing into the 11th Corps flank with Stuart's troopers leading the way. Not only could that have happened, it should have happened. Early could That's have had, on Jubal Early. Right, Early could have had troopers here within the hour. You know, to find out what was going on. What, what, what is it back here? Is it, you know, some uh, Confederate command that ran into local militia, which was happening quite a bit, you know, through southern Pennsylvania? Or is it uh, an indication of something bigger? Had he sent somebody down here, we'd have found out it was certainly something bigger. And it could have accomplished that goal of getting Stuart and, and Ewell's command together. Um, how it would have changed over the next couple of days? You know, that's the big question. The, the professionals like to call it the friction of war. You know, you, nothing ever goes entirely as planned. And uh, I love always, when I, when I talk about this, I always like to borrow a line from George Pickett when he when asked about why, why the Confederates lost the Battle of Gettysburg. Pickett said, well, the Yankees had something to do with it. <laughs> you know, clearly this, the Confederates hadn't quite adjusted yet to the concept that the Union Cavalry was on a par with them at this point. They were aggressive. They weren't passive. They were gonna take the fight to them. And I, I think Stuart was finally coming to that realization because of these actions we're describing. And it's, it really is a sea change 
for the Union and Confederate cavalry because really up until the spring of 1863, the Confederate cavalry had had its way with the Union troopers time and time again. And all of a sudden that calculus has changed. And that's a difficult situation to get beyond. Sure, and, and I think too, um, I think it's important to know what kind of condition, Eric touched on it, you know, that, that on the Confederate cavalry side, Jeb Stewart, uh, the condition of his command. You know, it's, it's hot, it's raining at times, it turns the roads into muddy gruel, literally, like trying to march through oatmeal or trying to get your horse through oatmeal. Um, they haven't bathed, they're not eating well, their horses um, aren't being rested right the horses have to be rested the horses are dying left and right you know we don't have good numbers but i'm quite certain that at least hundreds of horses are falling out uh, and that's one of the reasons why they need to capture as many as they can because they're constantly trading horses out for troopers whose whose mounts are literally just falling dead in the road um, they're they're scattered throughout stewart's route all the way up from virginia the dead horses, troopers themselves falling out, uh, heat exhaustion, you know, it's hot. Uh, I think to appreciate the condition is something that's also a major factor in, in his ride and how well he's able to, to progress with it. If visitors came to Hanover today, what landmarks can they look for from the battle? Well, right behind us, <laughs> we have what's called the Picket Monument. And this monument represents a, a federal soldier um, on picket, basically guarding and watching, you know, for the, the enemy coming. Um, it was installed here in the town square in 1904, actually in the center of the square, and it's been moved off to the side since. Um, Hanover takes its history very seriously, and these people need to be congratulated. Uh, just in the past five or six years alone, they put up a number of waysides all through different locations of where the, the battle has happened. Yeah, when you come into the square. It's a very good walking tour. Right, an excellent walking tour. We, we have a tour in our book, but they, they've also published a good local walking tour that visitors can take. And also when you're in the town square here, they have a kiosk, which has waysides not only on the battle, but also on the history of the town and, and the area as well. Um, they're really being congratulated for how much progress they've made here just in the past few years. Yeah, the walking tour is really extremely well done and, and anybody who is a, at all interested in, in visiting here, it's well worth it to pick it up. I believe it's available on the city's website. You can download it, park your car, get out and walk. There's still plenty to see. If you, on the other side of the square as an example, uh, there are a couple of artillery pieces that interestingly enough, they're two Parrot guns and one of those two guns is literally Parrot gun number one. Serial number one with Richard Parrott, the inventor's initials carved into the trunnion. Uh, there's also a marker over there for where the tree was, the maple tree that Custer tied his horse to. There's actually four horseshoes in the sidewalk marking that spot. And there's a plaque on the wall of, the, of a bank building on the other caddy corner from where we're sitting. And so when you, when you add that with the picket monument behind us and the walking tour that the city of Hanover has developed, you can get a very good sense of what took place here. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.